All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. we got a terrific Tuesday morning show for you. Week two of the B.C. election campaign started off with a bang yesterday when Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson promised this. We need bold action. So the B.C. Liberal government will eliminate the provincial sales tax for a full year. In the second year, we'll reduce it to 3%. Wow, okay, the Liberals promised to eliminate the sales tax for one year, chop it down to 3% in year two of a COVID relief plan. That is a big promise for sure. It is an expensive one to boot. This would carve a huge hole in the provincial budget. In year one of this promise to completely eliminate the PST, that's about $7 billion in lost government revenue there. Year two is another $4 billion. bucks. This will blow the budget to smithereens. Now remember, the budget was already blown. The deficit this year is already... $12 billion deficit. So, you know, you go from a $12 billion deficit to a $20 billion deficit. Does it really matter to BC voters? Well, I'll tell you what, a lot of listeners yesterday called up and said, yeah, we like this promise, bring it on, it's money in my pocket, help the economy. But a lot of listeners also told me this is crazy. It's reckless. This is like a Hail Mary pass by wilkinson here let's take a look at our twitter poll from yesterday you still got you can still get another hour to vote on this follow me on twitter you'll see it there the liberals promised to eliminate the pst is this a good idea or a bad idea here's what my poll said bad idea 55 percent good idea 45 percent so most people against this i this promise by the liberals in the poll we conducted yesterday with the listeners that is interesting i think the liberals were hoping uh, for a bigger bang out of this thing yesterday but it's early yet maybe this thing works for them maybe not let's talk a little bit about what this uh, pst cut would apply to there are different categories of goods that the PST is applied to and there are different rates for it as well so the liberals said yesterday you will not have to pay PST on soda pop starting next year remember the NDP government said we're going to bring in the PST on sugary drinks like pop soda pop even diet pop would apply as well Uh, you will not have to pay the PST on that anymore next year vape products Vape products. Remember, the NDP brought in a 20% sales tax on vapes. Uh, that will still apply. The Liberals said, okay, no, you're still going to have to pay provincial sales tax on vapes. I guess they didn't want to send a bad message there to kids uh, getting hooked on vape products. How about boats? How about high-end yachts? You think maybe they would not... Uh, maybe don't want to have a PST on yachts. No, you still... You wouldn't have to pay the PST on a yacht. So that would still, uh, you would not have to pay sales tax on a, on a boat. How about a private jet, a Lear jet? You would not have to pay the PST on an aircraft. Now, this is interesting, though. High-end vehicles. The, uh, the Liberals saying that you would still have to pay provincial sales tax on high-end vehicles. So if you're out there looking for a Ferrari or a Lamborghini, uh, you still have to pay the tax, man. Kind of inconsistent, I think, in the way this is going to be applies. But here's a real interesting one. Booze versus cannabis. All right. The PST exemption. If the liberals win, if they eliminate the PST, they would eliminate sales tax on liquor. You would not have to pay the provincial sales tax on booze. What about cannabis? You would still have to pay the tax on your cannabis. Why? Why would you get tax-free booze, 
but you still have to pay the tax on your pot. Well, the government said yesterday, or the liberals said yesterday, that's because they want to give a break to all the pubs and restaurants out there, give people a tax break on their booze to help the bars and struggling restaurants. You still got to pay the tax, though, on your cannabis products. Let's talk about this now with my guest, Dana Larson. He's an author and cannabis rights activist. Hiya, Dana. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. What do you think about the liberals saying you'll still have to pay the PST on uh, cannabis products if they, when they eliminate the PST if they get elected? It's pretty weird that one of the few categories they still want to keep taxing is cannabis. Uh, I don't really understand that at all, uh, I, you know, especially when you're comparing how much safer it is than alcohol. And you know, during the middle of an opioid crisis, when there's a lot of research showing that cannabis use can help people reduce their use of opiates, I really think they should be subsidizing cannabis in certain cases and making sure everybody has access to affordable cannabis. What do you, th- what do you think about that explanation that the reason they would lift the provincial sales tax on liquor is because bars, pubs, restaurants are suffering through this pandemic. They want to help them, therefore, lift the tax on booze. Well, I, I think that, that treating uh, alcohol more leniently and easily accessible than cannabis is a bad public health policy. If you're going to be lowering the taxes on alcohol, you should be treating cannabis the same way. But it's another example of how our politicians still, even though cannabis is legal, they're still stigmatizing and attacking cannabis users and treating it like it's some kind of sin to want to use cannabis. Yeah, do you think that's maybe the liberals playing to their base of supporters there that maybe didn't want to see uh, the liberals saying, we're going to give you a tax break on, on marijuana? It just seems to me like making expensive like luxury cars and cannabis two categories that don't get taxed. They're, like, they're frivolous things that aren't important to people and don't really matter, but alcohol, well, that's something we really got to make sure people can access. It doesn't seem right to me. Yeah, speaking to Dana Larson about this, how is the cannabis business doing overall during this pandemic? Like the liberals are saying they want to lift the tax, give a, a tax break on liquor because bars and restaurants and pubs are struggling. What about cannabis stores? Are they struggling too? Well, everybody's struggling right now, and cannabis users certainly. Uh, I mean, cannabis stores are probably doing the same as always. Their real problem is to yeah. do with the regulation and controls that make it hard to access it. But, you know, cannabis users are struggling financially like everybody else and, and forcing cannabis users to keep paying tax that you're taking off of every other product. Yeah. Uh, that really seems like a, re- a weird bias against cannabis users. And that doesn't really, And there's a lot of medical cannabis users out there, too, oh. people who use it as a medicine, and they're still paying tax on it as well. So even medicinal cannabis users aren't going to get a break on the PST under these rules. Yeah, that's right. Medical cannabis would still be hit with the provincial sales tax. I imagine, though, that during this pandemic, I don't know, people might be smoking more weed. Probably maybe the cannabis oh. stores are doing better. Probably passing less joints, but maybe smoking more weed. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Okay, so what is your message to the liberals on this? Hey, we need to get rid of the tax on the vaping as well, and, and that, that 20% oh. tax is very punitive there, too. I'd like to see that removed. But we got to stop stigmatizing cannabis, recognizing that cannabis is a good medicine for people. It's also a safer substitute during an opioid crisis. I think they should be uh, subsidizing uh, cannabis edibles, especially oh. for opioid users, and not treating cannabis uh, like it's something frivolous and unimportant. Okay, let me ask you about the vapes. That's very interesting because it was the NDP that brought in this 20% sales tax on vape products, and that was in response to rising vape use by kids. They wanted to make it more expensive to buy these products and maybe make it a disincentive for young people to get hooked on nicotine. Uh, what do you think of that? 
I think the way to, to deal with youth is to have it restricted to adults only in terms of sales, but I think punishing everybody with higher prices because you want youth not to, to consume it. We don't do that with alcohol. We don't tax alcohol even higher to let, let youth not consume it or whatever. It just seems like a very uh, blunt instrument to deal with the youth use when you're just punishing everybody else. And, and the reality is vaping is a lot safer than smoking for many people, uh, and so it shouldn't be uh, uh, dealt with punitively. Interesting. So, Okay, Dana, thanks for coming on. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having I appre- me. All right. Some sound there from a protest rally early this morning in the Strathcona neighborhood. It is the Strathcona Stands for Safe Homes for All neighborhood protests. Of course, we've got the tent city in Strathcona Park, the largest homeless encampment in Canada. It's been going on for months, and there are hundreds of uh, people living in that park, the community and the neighborhoods, uh, people who live around the park say they've seen an increase in personal and property crime and public health hazards. They want something done from government, and they took to the streets this morning in a protest rally. Let's check in with Jamie McLaren now. He's a Strathcona neighborhood resident, one of the uh, community leaders there. Jamie, thanks a lot for coming on. Hi, Mike. Thanks how for many, having me. Thanks a lot for doing this. How many people did you get out to your rally this morning? We estimated between 300 and 400 people. Wow. Um, we're spread up and down Pryor Street, so you know, fairly spread out, but mainly concentrated at Pryor and Hawks. Okay, what was the message you want to get across there? Well, we, the main message uh, is, is quite clear, and it's a, we want action now in, in terms of government providing safe homes for, for people in, in Strathcona Park, uh, our unhoused neighbours. It's been four months of the encampment being here in Strathcona. Conditions are, are worsening. Uh, there's an escalation in violent incidents. It's, it's not a safe situation for anyone, and yet our, our government officials have been completely absent from the scene. No action taken, so we're, we're quite fed up with it. I noticed that in, in the poster that you guys put up to advertise the rally, you invited uh, residents of the, of the neighborhood to come out who are both housed and unhoused, so essentially saying to the people living in the park, living in the tents in Strathcona Park, join us and rally too. Did, did you actually get any any residents of the park out rallying and marching with you this morning? Yeah, we had we had several, uh, not okay. as many as we'd hoped, but we had some. You know, there I think there was some fear and apprehension about joining the neighborhood protest. You know, it's yeah. a, the, the the usual dynamic is that the neighborhood is protesting against a homeless camp and then we're right. very much not of that sort so it's you know we understand if they're they're a bit nervous about about joining us but some did so we were happy about that yeah and i guess the point you're trying to drive home there is that you're not protesting so much against the people in the park but you're saying like this is unsafe for the people living in these conditions too right yeah absolutely you know yeah. we we have fundamentally the same message as camp leadership um, and, and that is that, you know, permanent housing is needed now um, and in the interim until we get to permanent housing, you know, temporary, creative temporary solutions are needed that, that serve the diverse needs of, of the campers in, the, in Strathcona Park. So, you know, we've seen no movement at all from government on that front and it's been four months and it makes you wonder what they've been doing all this time. So. Okay, th- between 300 and 400 people at a rally is, is pretty big. That's a pretty big rally. Um, were you guys all wearing masks and trying to social distance there? 
Yeah, absolutely. We yeah. had uh, it all written out in terms of instructions or or recommendations, and so I'd say you know almost everyone had a mask. Everyone was keeping distance from each other. It was it was very respectful. We all had signs. We were yelling. My voice is a bit hoarse now, and but but um, but yeah, it, it was a very peaceful co- uh, protest. There was one arrest in the end um, of a, a camp leader, um, but uh, you know other than that, oh. it was it was very peaceful and. And went went well, I think. Why, why was there an arrest of a camp leader? Uh, she she blocked traffic near the end of the protest, um, and and was you know expressing herself and and you know and in her position. So you know we respect that, um, and and the police you know got involved. But um, and and we as 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 protest leaders asked the police to to treat her with with respect and dignity, and and and, and that was that. So you know. There's a, you know, it was a protest, so things happened at protests, and uh, but overall, I think it was very positive. Okay, okay. Um, speaking to Jamie McLaren, he's one of the neighborhood leaders there, uh, protesting the conditions in the homeless encampment there in Strathcona. I mean, that's interesting that you had, you say you had some people from from the encampment marching with you, and one leader of the campers. I guess what was what was her point? What was the point that she was trying to make there? I don't know. It's an indigenous leader. Her name's Chrissy Brett, and she Chrissy has very Brett, strong, yeah, 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 very strong views, and she has a you know a, a history and experience in, in leading these type of encampments and advocating on you know for her her community. So I don't yeah. know exactly what she was saying, but um, you know she she wanted to make a point, and I think she probably made it. But again, I, I you know I, I don't know what that was all about. I, I I know what happened, but that happened at the very end of our protest and. And overall, it was it was very positive. You know, I think we made our voices heard. The the yeah. cars going by were honking their horns. We got a lot of support, and it was very energizing. Right. Okay. Yeah, I know Chrissy Brad. I've interviewed her before. You, did you say she was arrested? Yes. Okay. Okay. Um, what action are you calling for from government? Well, we want government to treat this uh, like a humanitarian crisis. It is. You know, this is a, a disaster, and, and you know, if. if if it was treated like a natural disaster, we'd have tents set up and, and supports provided in, in a matter of hours, not a matter of months or, or years. So, you know, we want government to take action now. People are at risk. You know, there's, I don't know if they're going to wait until there's a, a fatal tragedy in the park or in the neighborhood, but it's it's going in that direction. You know, we've had uh, people being chased with by people with chainsaws. We've had uh, we've, there's been an assault rifle found in a, in a bag near the park. Uh, we've had uh, children accosted by by adults um, in, yeah. in McLean Park. You know, it's it's an untenable situation. I don't know what they're waiting for, but it's it's beyond crisis level now. Okay, what's happening with the? Uh, some people want to see uh, some kind of tax tax strike. There, people might refuse to pay their property taxes, which are due due tomorrow. Right? Are, the, are t- property yeah. taxes due tomorrow? That's right. That was one of our strategies as a tax resistance campaign, and that was to put pressure on municipal government, to put more pressure on provincial government and so forth. But basically what that was is a homeowner saying, you know, we're going we're gonna to defer our taxes, we're going to withhold our taxes until, until government spends, it, spends our taxes more equitably and, and, and more compassionately. And so we had 2,000 signatures in support of, of uh, the tax withholding, the tax resistance. So it's, yeah, taxes are due tomorrow. Um, so, you know, the, our municipal government will see the impact of, of our tax resistance campaign, but it was one strategy and, and we have others. Okay. I, I assume that you will, you yourself will not be paying your property taxes tomorrow. I, I've, we're, we're deferring our taxes cause we qualify for, for deferral. So yeah, we won't be paying our taxes and that's, 
You know, what if what if you don't what if you don't qualify for a deferral and you refer to you refuse to pay your property taxes? What what kind of penalties could you face for doing that? There's a a five percent annual penalty, you know, and, wow. and the way we we see it is you know people can withhold their taxes at their own risk, of course. It's you know in a non-binding declaration that people signed, um, but it's five percent, and if you withhold. You know, you know, the five dollars you're still withholding taxes from 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 city government and sending a message. So it's, you know, we we recognize it as more of a symbolic measure than a, a financially impactful measure, but it's it's yeah. it's it's one lever we can pull. Speaking of Jamie McLaren in the Strathcona neighborhood, uh, the mayor of Vancouver, Kennedy Stewart, recently came out with with a with a housing plan that he hopes would move people out of the park but doesn't it seems to be kind of a longer term plan that would not kick in for several months what did you think of that plan yeah well we've we've heard about all sorts of plans and, and you know and we've heard all sorts of words from politicians over the past years you know that gregor robertson promised to end homelessness in, in vancouver but but that didn't happen quite the opposite happened so you know until we see people being housed and and the people in strathcona park being housed and supported you know, we're going to continue to put pressure on government. His, the words you know, don't matter to us. What, what matters is action, and we're not seeing it. Do you think that this, this particular neighborhood in Strathcona is not as high up on the priority list for politicians? Like maybe if this was happening in a different neighborhood, it might get more attention? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we, you, all you have to do is travel to the U.S. side to see the difference in how, how those neighborhoods are maintained, how, you know, what supports and resources are provided. You know, there's a long legacy of, of neglect and abandonment here in Strathcona. Uh, governments just don't seem to care too much about this neighborhood. It's the lowest socioeconomic level neighborhood uh, with the downtown east side in, in Vancouver, and it's it's treated as, as disposable, I think. You know, we, we, we certainly vote NDP in the provincial elections with the every election, and, and I guess maybe, you know, we're taken for granted because of that. Who knows? But it's it's definitely, uh, uh, you know, there's, there's some discrimination and, um, and, and disadvantage going on here. Okay, Jamie, where does this go next? You got over 300 people out this morning. That's a pretty good turnout at a protest rally, especially during COVID times. Where does it go from here? Well, we'll be watching city council and the mayor and see what they do after the October 2nd staff report comes back with different options. We hope they, mm-hmm. they choose all of the available options and proceed and don't use the election as an excuse for for more inaction uh, or bylaws or any such thing you know so we're watching that and if if we don't see more action we'll we'll t- we'll, we'll do more things you know Speak- we, yeah. well, we might march on city hall um, and we might uh, look at rail blockades so we're, we're looking at all our options yeah rail blockades yeah oh, really? there's a history of uh, blocking the rails here in Strathcona to uh-huh. to compel government action and so we're looking at that we're wow. not saying we'll do it necessarily but I'm not sure. You, I'm not sure you get a whole lot of public support for that. Well, yeah. I mean, that's why we're considering it. It's just another option. All right, Jamie. Thank you for coming on. Okay. Thank you, Mike. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the big debate tonight in the United States. They've been building up to this moment for months. U.S. President Donald Trump facing off tonight against former vice president and Democratic nominee for president Joe Biden. The first debate of the U.S. presidential campaign. It happens tonight at 6 p.m. local time. So synchronize your watches for that one. This is going to be can't miss tonight. Trump versus Biden. And this is going to get down and dirty and nasty you can just feel it here's listen to trump here is trump going after biden here in a real personal way trump here 
And I said, how did he go from there, with those horrible performances, to where he was okay? And I always joke, but you know, it is true. He was no Winston Churchill in debating, but he was fine. And people say he was on performance enhancing drugs. A lot of people have said that. A lot of people have written that. So, so, take a look at it. Take a look. Why don't you just check it? You can check out the internet. You'll see plenty of people say it. Okay, it's Trump there accusing Biden of being on drugs. This this is going to be crazy tonight. What is going to happen in this first debate? Well, let's check in now with Reggie Ciccini, Washington producer, correspondent for Global National in Washington, D.C. Very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Reggie, thanks for coming on. Good morning. Reggie, you've covered these before. Will this be unlike any other pre- presidential debate we've ever seen? Well, it will be in the sense that the coronavirus pandemic is going to place restrictions on how the debate can take place. There will be no introductory handshake between the two men to start the night off. Uh, there will be COVID testing for the small audience that's going to be inside. There's also going to be no uh, opening remarks between the two gentlemen. It's simply going to be inside and they'll start those questions. But when it comes to that small audience, that really could set the tone for how this night goes because Donald Trump is somebody who really reveres in having that response from an audience around him when without that, uh, it could could be silent, uh, which will allow for the fireworks to really fly between the two men. Okay, what else can we dis- expect tonight? What are you watching for? Well, um, ideally, we are watching for how each of these candidates are going to be addressing the American public. Is Donald Trump simply going to be going after his base to try and shore up support that has been eroding over the last couple of months? Or is he going to try to broaden it out, understanding that there is still a margin of people out there that are undecided that he could bring into his uh, kind of uh, uh, orbit? Whereas uh, Joe Biden, is he going to make this a referendum on Donald Trump's four years in office? Is he going to simply make it a referendum on Donald Trump's response to the coronavirus? virus pandemic that's killed 205,000 American people. There are multiple ways that this is going to carry out tonight. Uh, Both of them are going to use personal attacks. Both of them are going to use political attacks on each other. Uh, And it really is going to make for, as we've all said, must-see TV for a Tuesday night. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. What about these revelations we saw this week from the New York Times about Donald Trump's tax returns there? The New York Times reporting that he paid, what, $750 in taxes because he had lost so much money as a business guy over the last several years or many years. He didn't pay any tax at all. Trump, of course, calling it fake news. He says it's not true. Will this loom large in the debate tonight, do you think? Well, it's possible, yeah, and for a number of different reasons here. We've heard from the press secretary earlier today that the Department of Justice may actually open up an investigation into this story, despite the fact that the president is calling it fake news. But number two, uh, it may not do much to move the needle. Donald Trump's base did not move away from him four years ago when the Access Hollywood tapes came out. They're likely not going to be impacted by the fact that a billionaire was able to use the tax loopholes to his advantage. That is something they may simply say, look, Donald Trump was able to work the system good on him. Whereas someone like Joe Biden is going to paint this as Donald Trump being the elite of the elites, working to actively work against uh, the average American worker, kind of painting it as one of those Fifth Avenue versus Scranton, Pennsylvania, or white collar versus blue collar debates. So while it will be brought into the mix, it's really uh, it's kind of hard to see how they're going to put it as a main focus and how Donald Trump is going to work to avoid those conversations. 
Yeah, speaking of some of those swing states, I mean, this is where this election is probably won or lost. When you talk about states like Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, all these very closely contested states where the the whole election kind of pivots. Do you think the pressure is on Biden to do something dramatic to to really to really damage Trump in order to get some momentum going in those crucial states? Well, I mean, there there is an opportunity here for Joe Biden to pick up some more support. But if you look at the way that the maps are colored in right now, kind of going into the debate and if an election were held right now, Joe Biden realistically holds a lead that's outside of a, the margin of error in most of those swing states. And he holds a count of 269 electoral votes if there was an election right now. And if everything kind of went to how the pollsters are looking at it, that puts him just one uh, electoral count shy of uh, of a majority victory here. So all really Joe Biden needs to do is kind of put his focus on those potential flip states like North Carolina or Florida or somewhere in the yeah. Southwest, potentially in the Midwest. Those are the numbers where Joe Biden needs to look because he does have a strong hold on those important key battleground states right now that Donald Trump won handily back in 2016. Okay, speaking to Reggie Ciccini, he's Global Nationals correspondent in Washington, D.C., talking about the big debate tonight, Donald Trump versus Joe Biden, 6 p.m. Pacific time. When you take a look, Reggie, at some of that polling number, it looks like uh, most voters in the United States have already made up their minds uh, how they're going to vote in this campaign. Are there enough swing voters that could tip the scales as a result of this debate? Uh, if you're Donald Trump, uh, yes, the, the swing voters really could be make or break. They could also be make or break uh, for Joe Biden's campaign. Donald Trump, as we've said, his base is really starting to run away from him uh, in a slow fashion. So if he can bring his own base back, but also try to lure over those undecideds that exist across the United States, that does give him a better chance. And it would elevate him in the polls right now because there are roughly somewhere between 10 and 15 percent of Americans who say that they haven't made up their mind, uh, which really is kind of a startling figure in a country that's so bitterly divided over politics. But for Joe Biden, if he were to take just 1% of those undecideds in the country, that ultimately could flip four states in his favor and give him a massive electoral vote. Wow. So when you're listening to those men talk tonight, listen to who they're targeting and talking to because they really could be talking to those few Americans that really will be the make or break decision for them. Yeah, that's really fascinating stuff. I think the pressure is on biden really more than trump tonight for precisely those reasons trump is so unpredictable you never know what he's going to say you never know what he's going to do how does biden counter something like that going in against a guy like trump who could just say anything do anything yeah, look, this is where that kind of contrast of debate preparations has come in. Joe Biden has spent the last four or five days behind a closed door, not doing any media stakeouts, simply to be able to prep for whatever Donald Trump is going to throw at him. Because remember, Donald Trump is going to try to discredit eight years of him being a vice president, plus the last four years of him kind of sitting at the, the, the upper echelons of the Democratic Party. But there's also an opportunity that Donald Trump is going to get personal and try to get under the skin of Joe Biden by bringing in Hunter Biden's name into this uh, conversation. Oh. Yeah. And do, in doing that, uh, Joe Biden has an opportunity to fight back on President Trump to say, look, you're impeached because of how you were dealing with things uh, with Ukraine and trying to bring my son's name into it. So Joe Biden is going to have to dance around Donald Trump's ability to be able to steer the conversation in any number of directions. But because the bar has been set so low for Biden, all he really has to do is give straightforward, simple answers. And that's going to make it considered a win. Oh, man, this is fascinating. How about that? We just got a minute left here or so, Reggie. Well, what about Chris Wallace as, as the moderator here, Fox News host? He's got kind of a sometimes contentious relationship 
with Trump, even though he's with Fox News, Trump's favorite uh, favorite TV network. Is that kind? Of, is he kind of a wild card? What? How do you think he'll be as the moderator? Well, he's already said that he wants to kind of fade back into the darkness. And once he asks a question, once he starts the debate, let the two guys go at it with each other. But you're right. Donald Trump has a contentious relationship with him. He likes him when the questions are favorable. He doesn't like him when the questions aren't favorable. So while we're watching Donald Trump fight back against Joe Biden and the Democrats, there is an opportunity here for Joe, uh, for Donald Trump to also go after Fox News for not treating him properly. And instead of kind of acting as America's president, you may see Donald Trump take uh, some of the questions personally. And that's where you'll start to see some of that anger start up okay last question for you reggie who's got the most to lose here tonight i mean biden's going into this thing if you believe the polls with a lead so i think there's more pressure on him to perform tonight uh do you think there's uh the pressure is on biden here more than trump the pressure is on Democrats as a whole because of how they looked at polling in 2016 and anticipated that they were just going to be able to run away with things and then let their guard down. So Joe Biden does need to be on his kind of best game tonight simply because there is so much riding for the Democrats right now. Most people tuning in, they know that it's going to be a circular argument given by Donald Trump. They're not expecting anything new. So it is just an opportunity for the Democrats to say, look, we went in, we did our best, and this is how we can do it. Reggie, busy day for you. Thanks a lot for taking the time. Thank you. All right. Welcome back. We know that businesses are struggling during the COVID-19 pandemic, but does it make sense for businesses to constantly face legal challenges and government hurdles? Our show contributor, John Jang, now has more on the struggles that cannabis stores are facing. Good morning, Mike. It was just over 24 hours ago we heard Andrew Wilkinson promise that if his liberals win this election, they would eliminate the PST for a year before bringing it back at 3% for the following year until further notice. But if you were to read the fine print, you would have noticed that the PST would still apply to cannabis and vape-related products, which, according to Brian Jones, the co-owner of Summit Cannabis Company, isn't surprising whatsoever. It's just another unfair circumstance that the industry has to deal with. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't surprise me, unfortunately. Um, I, it is a continual battle, and we continue to face challenges just like this and being excluded from certain programs that are in place. Uh, that do benefit small businesses to having something just outright like having us exempted from a PST exemption when we have been basically deemed an essential service for consumers. And um, if they would like the cannabis, the retail and legal cannabis program to expand and thrive, they need to support us in more ways than just allowing us to stay open. I asked Brian to elaborate on those challenging circumstances that he's had to deal with as the owner of a licensed cannabis retail store in BC, and if he felt that the industry was largely successful in spite of how the government treats them. Well, that's just it, and and we see it we see it time and time again. Whether it's just paying to open a business bank account with a certain financial institution that's one of the big five, or as small as paying a huge fee on insurance. And, and because of the industry that we do and the business and products that we handle day by day, it seems like there's some huge risk factor that, that's just not true. Um, uh, it comes down to even that we don't qualify for certain things in the wage subsidy program that are available to other small businesses. Our, our costs have definitely increased, especially during these times of the pandemic. Um, costs to continue doing business safely um, and ensure the consumer's safety is priority and my staff's safety because we're not able to stay open if we're not healthy. Um, 
so it's large things like that. And competing with ourselves, basically, um, or with our wholesale supplier, sorry, is a big hurdle for us as well. Having no online sales platform, no curbside pickup. Uh, so basically, conforming to this Cannabis Act with a 30-gram purchase limit for a consumer uh, when you can purchase as much liquor as you'd like to day by day, as long as your debit card doesn't have a max on it. As the country prepares for the second wave of COVID-19, I asked Brian about his industry's unique position during the pandemic, in his case as the owner of a small business, but a business that more and more people have been utilizing to help deal with the stress of COVID-19. Absolutely, and we see it more and more. Stressful times in society call for people to cope um, and well, I don't want to consider it a coping mechanism, but I do know that a lot of people do find relief in cannabis and cannabis-related products, whether it's the beverages or the edibles. Uh, we try to endorse um, safe consumption methods that aren't um, smoking. But, yeah, absolutely, I would say that business has overall increased, which has also made it more difficult to do business, Um with all of the restrictions in place. But yeah, I'd say that business and consumer awareness of cannabis in general is improving day by day. So what is the worst case scenario if his industry continues to face government red tape just to qualify for assistance during a global pandemic and retail stores like Brian's are unable to stay in business, there is the fear that customers will simply resort to illegal methods to get their product, which means less revenue for the province overall, and more importantly, more money back into the black market. That's right, for sure. Well, then we know that all of that money will be basically lost to the to the gray market or the illicit market. So, And, and it, that is a tough pill to swallow after the government and everyone has put all of the time and effort in putting all of these things in place for the basket just to get soggy and fall apart. Uh, we hope to see that, and I, I have to say that in the last 13 months, I've seen tremendous improvements as well in supply, in quality, and in in just overall product knowledge that the licensed producers are coming to market with. So that is refreshing. What we do want to see, though, is more of a Health Canada um, standpoint as to, like, let's open up the availability and not treat this as such a harmful substance. Um, I know that the, the studies are still being done, but the reality of it is, is if you do the studies, how it sits now, alcohol is number one on the list, basically, for harm, and that's to the, the user and to people around them. So uh, it's tough for us to be categorized similar to them, but with way more restrictions. All right, Brian Jones there, the owner of Summit Cannabis Company, in conversation with our own John Jang, and John joins me now. Interesting stuff, John. I thought it was an interesting point he made there right at the end, too, uh, comparing cannabis and booze and alcohol, like which is the more damaging substance in our society. And I would say that alcohol is definitely more damaging from a, from the point of view of addiction, drunk driving, alcoholism, and all the terrible things it can trigger. You know, that's just is it makes it a tough pill to swallow for the cannabis sector when they hear the liberals saying, "Elect us." And we're going to cut taxes on liquor, but mm-hmm. we won't cut taxes on cannabis. That's, yeah, uh, yeah. your thoughts. Yeah, 
it's probably very frustrating for them to be looped into the same sort of uh, definition of these uh, of these you know hazardous materials. When in reality, when you look at the the stats and the the reports, you're right, Mike. Booze is so much more dangerous to users for so many different reasons. You listed out like drunk driving, and so if you're thinking about opening a small business like Brian did here. Imagine having to sort through all that red tape and all the costs that are associated with it. It's just astronomical. No, I think alcohol is way more brutal on your body, too, than marijuana, my opinion. But people might be wondering, why would the liberals promise to cut taxes on liquor, Mm. but not cut taxes on on cannabis? And I can tell you that the, the explanation for that, I asked the party for an explanation. They said that the reason they would do that is because they want to help bars, pubs, and restaurants that sell liquor and that are obviously struggling during this pandemic. So that's why they want to give them a tax break. They say there is no equivalent businesses for cannabis. So you can't go to a restaurant or a lounge or or any kind of business and buy and consume cannabis on site. So that's the difference between cannabis and liquor from approaching it from a taxation point of view. But you know yeah, what? I I don't I still think it's not fair. Like I I think if look, if you're going to cut taxes on liquor, you should cut taxes on cannabis too. Bottom line. I I agree. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly. I feel like cannabis is still kind of prejudiced in terms of how people view it. Uh, after all, it, it's been so many decades uh, being the taboo sort of material, the gateway drug that people used to classify it as. We know so much more yeah. about it now. And scientifically, you know, there's still studies being done, but a lot of them already that suggest that, you know, it actually is a very good way to help yourself and self-medicate in terms of going through PTSD or other mental health issues. Well, yeah, and it's also a legal product now, and the people who are running these businesses are, these are legit, regulated, heavily taxed businesses, like the guy you just spoke to. So I think it's a bit of a a kick at them to say, we're going to cut taxes for liquor, but we won't cut taxes for your business. That's not fair. I I wonder if maybe the liberals are thinking politics on this, if there's still some Mm. stigma around, around cannabis. Maybe they think that some of their more conservative supporters in the Liberal Party would not like the optics or the look of the Liberals promising to reduce taxes on cannabis. Maybe that has something to do with it, but I, I still think it's un, it's unfair. You know, if you're going to cut taxes for liquor, come on. Yeah. Come yeah. on. They, no, you know, they I, cut I agree. taxes too for, for cannabis. They, they, they are probably catering a little bit to that uh, to that right, right-leaning I think so. audience. Yeah. I, I think so. The other interesting one is vape products because uh, the NDP brought in a very heavy tax on vape products, 20% sales tax. And the liberals say they won't touch that one either. So when they roll back the sales tax, you will still have to pay that heavy sales tax on vape products. Now that's kind of a tougher one because we got a problem with young kids going, you know, using vapes. Yep. Yeah, that one's different because it's it's so much more recent and there's still uh, an uncertain amount of research and studies that have gone into whether or not it's as more or as dangerous or more dangerous than smoking cigarettes or uh, smoking cannabis. But because of its unknown sort of background and nature, I do think that the tax on the, the vape, it, it, it makes sense in terms of what you're trying to do and deter youth from using it. Um, yeah. I personally don't use it. I don't really know any one of my friends that use it. But it does seem to be appealing to a very specific market, that, of course, being young adults and, and maybe teenagers from 18 up. Well, that is a big problem. And, and I'm a parent. I got two teenage boys at home. And I do worry about 
the vaping fad, I guess, or more kids vaping. And even when I walk by my son's high school, I still see lots of kids and groups vaping. And mm -hmm. I feel like going up to them and saying, what are you doing? Like, we are making such great progress in getting kids to stop smoking cigarettes. And now you see almost a, a whole new generation taking up vaping. So I can understand the government saying they want to do something about it. And I think they should do something. It's a pretty blunt instrument, though, when you bring in a 20% tax. Because you know what? For some people, using vapes, I think, is a good thing if they can use it as a tobacco cessation device. Like, if, right. you, can, if you can quit smoking and go to vaping instead, that's a good thing. I smoke cigarettes, so I would tell anyone listening, don't do it. Don't fall into that trap because I'm still stuck on it. I haven't thought of using vaporizers as uh, as sort of the uh, weaning myself off cigarettes, but I know plenty of people yeah. that maybe have had those good experiences. So you're right. There are, there probably is benefits to you to using it. Yeah. Let's listen. Go, let's, uh, speaking of the cannabis stuff, let's go back to Let me uh, play this for you. This is Dana Larson, who is a cannabis activist, and he was on the show earlier today, and we were talking about this loophole the liberals want to bring in where cannabis would remain taxed and i asked him how cannabis stores are doing if they're struggling during this pandemic here's what he told me you know cannabis users are struggling financially like everybody else and and forcing cannabis users to keep paying tax that you're taking off of every other product yeah. uh that really seems like a, a weird bias against cannabis users and that doesn't really, and there's a lot of medical cannabis users out there too oh. people who use it as a medicine and they're still paying tax on it as well so even medicinal cannabis users aren't going to get a break on the pst under these rules Okay, come on. Even medical cannabis would still be taxed? Yeah. Come on. Yeah, because people source it the same way. You know, you go to these retail locations that offer the medicinal um, uh, products as well. But yeah, it's taxed right then and there, and the tax would still apply even if the yeah. liberals take government. It's interesting, though, that even with these uh, PST removals of other products, not including cannabis and vape products, you know, these small businesses like Brian's here, the, the, the Summit Cannabis Company, they still have to pay, as he mentioned, significant fees to open bank accounts with any of the major banks in Canada. So right. while some people might still be using them uh, on a more regular basis throughout the pandemic, they still have an extensive overhead that people probably aren't considering.